Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I just hit a wall and I was diagnosed with depression and... It was a really pivotal moment in my life. It was one of the hardest things that I've been through, but at the same time, I look back at it as one of the best things that ever happened to me. Hello, and welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. I'm Claire Hatton. And I'm Greta Thomas, and we're on a mission to help you achieve your goals. We're all about sharing the secrets of the world's most innovative and pioneering successful women. Hear their uplifting stories and practical advice right here. Yes, right here. And if you're enjoying this podcast, then why not sign up for our newsletter at hello at don'tstopusnow.co and keep listening for this week's latest episode. Hello and welcome, dear listeners. We're really excited to share this week's episode with you today. Yes, we are. You know, we just loved our conversation with changemaker, leader and author, Holly Ransom. Holly's pioneered her way into boardrooms and forums at the top end of town. But what's really interesting about her is not her corporate success, but rather her deep thoughtfulness and drive to make the world a better place. Yeah, absolutely. Now, for listeners who haven't heard of Holly, she's a 31-year-old Australian who's had a very global career, from chairing the Youth G20 Summit to being an internationally sought-after speaker and conference MC to now authoring her first book, The Leading Edge. As a Fulbright Scholar, Holly's also just recently completed her Master's of Public Policy in Technology at the Harvard Kennedy School of Business. She's been busy, hasn't she? She certainly has. (laughs) Holly was awarded the US Embassy's Eleanor Roosevelt Award for Leadership Excellence in 2019, and she was nominated by Richard Branson as his pick for future game changers to watch. She's met and had conversations with some of the most high-profile people in the world as part of her role as conference moderator and speaker, interviewing everyone from President Obama to Muhammad Yunus and Malcolm Gladwell. Holly has long had the fortitude to blaze her own path, and in this episode you'll hear how Holly's life has been shaped by her curiosity about the big questions in life, why developing depression was one of the most powerful shifts in her life and what she now does differently, how she goes about connecting with and learning from some of the world's most successful people, what she learned from doing something that scared her every day for a year and why she's so passionate about busting myths about who can be a leader. So without further ado, enjoy this episode with the pioneering and inspiring Holly Ransom. Holly, welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. We're super excited. We've been wanting to speak to you for ages and ages because you are one of those people that's out there in the world doing great things. 
So we're excited to have this conversation. And as our listeners know, whenever we kick off the podcast, we always start with a question to help ground for them who you are and what you do. So the question is, if you met someone at a dinner party for the first time, how would you describe what you do today to them? Oof, great question. And it would depend a little bit on who I'm talking to, because I think one of the, the joys and many of your listeners probably sit in this boat too, of, of having sort of a, a portfolio career would probably be leading with whatever I thought would be of most interest to the person that I had just connected with or met. But I, I wear a couple of different hats. So I'm very lucky to be able to serve as a, a moderator and curator and host of conversations and conferences right around the world. I absolutely love connecting ideas, trying to make sense of the world and break down complexity and love doing that on stage, love doing that as a host of podcasts and video series and and you name it. So that's an absolute passion. Very lucky to serve as a a company director. So do a lot of work in kind of a non-executive director capacity, working with organizations with a real heartbeat around change, culture and leadership. And then the, the part that I'm trying to get my head around is uh, in a couple of days, I'll, well, I guess it's it's done and baked, so I can probably use the term now, but it feels a bit weird to be able to say I'm a first-time author now. So um, that's been something, having spent the, the better part of the last two years away studying and thinking deeply about leadership and the state of play around the world. I, I've just put pen to paper or fingers to, to keyboard as is more accurate and finish my first book, which is The Leading Edge. So very excited about building a movement uh, around new and, and diverse leadership for that matter, which I know is something you two are both very passionate about. Absolutely. And, and we'll really get stuck into that a bit later. You know, it's super exciting and, and no mean task writing a book. It seems very intimidating to me, but congratulations for having done it. So before we really get into the work that you do, we like to always go back to find out a bit more about where the person started from and where you came from. And so if we rewind back a few decades, you grew up in Perth in Western Australia. What was your childhood like? Oh, yeah, it's uh, it's interesting knowing Greta has this Perth context too, because, you know, I think Perth is the, the picture that people paint of it. It's it's beautiful. It's very idyllic, you know, from an environmental standpoint. And I was very fortunate in a lot of ways to grow up in the West because one of the things I think is great about Western Australia is it's a very flat part of the world. And I mean that in the sense of people are really accessible. You know, you will you will meet leaders of companies at the local football ground on the weekend. You'll meet the Lord Mayor, you know, down the street at the shops having a coffee. There was this real accessibility to people, which for someone who was innately curious, I look back and go how lucky I was to have a community where it felt so easy to go and find answers to questions. So I think that was a real benefit. On the flip side, I think one of the things that I, I found challenging was I never felt like I fitted in in WA. Just the, the way that I was thinking was different to what the, the normal might have been. I was asking big questions at a young age. I didn't always feel like I was in environments that were that encouraging of that. And so it was a little bit of a mix. And what do you think it was that made you at such a young age be so curious and want to ask these really big questions? Is definitely, definitely grandma. For those who read the book, you'll you'll see it's dedicated to my grandparents. They're 70 years married this year. They're an unbelievable force for good in this world and certainly in my life. And my grandmother in particular, I have a really close relationship with. And if I can be a a fraction of the woman that she is, I, I will consider myself a success. She was someone who told me that we should be challenging the world around us. And and she didn't tell me through saying it. She told me by doing it. You know, my earliest memory was of the two of us shopping uh, in Scarborough. For those who know Perth really well, we'd gone to get some stuff for lunch. 
And there was a guy that was in the checkout line ahead of us. And I was probably four or five at the time. He was a giant in my head at that age. He looked like seven foot tall. And he was absolutely chewing into the checkout assistant who was a young girl and she looked like she wanted to melt into the floor. And the sense I could make of it was she'd given him the wrong change and he had absolutely decided to lay into her over it and was being quite rude and aggressive. And before I know it, you know, my five foot tall grandmother has inserted herself between this giant and the lady on the checkout and is pointing her finger up at him and saying, how dare you talk to that young woman like that? You apologise. I just remember being like fixed in the floor, just watching this play out like a deer in the headlights. And this guy sheepishly, you know, grabbed his stuff, mumbled, sorry, rushed out of the store. And my grandmother thought nothing of it. Like she proceeded to check the young girl was okay and then paid for her, you know, bread and whatever else we were getting and wandered out of the store before she realised that I wasn't still holding her hand standing next to her. I was still like fixed back in the line, taking this whole scene in. And I remember saying to her, you know, I said, Grandma, that was so brave. And she said to me, honey, if you walk past it, you tell the world it's okay. Yeah. It has taken me a long time to understand the full significance of what my grandmother did in that moment and what she imparted on me and the responsibility she also created for me in that regard. But I think there's been this pattern in my life ever since where when I look at the decisions I make, to choose different opportunities, um, et cetera, it's always come down to something I've not been prepared to walk past. And I think the responsibility that comes in those moments is not just to not walk past it, but to do something about it. And that naturally requires curiosity because you have to understand why something is the way that it is before you can change it. And so for me, I think the curiosity was sort of emboldened by what my grandma did in in that moment. And one of the things I love about her is she she didn't have a title. She wasn't a CEO. She wasn't running the company. She was a fraction of the size of the man that she chose to say, hey, that's not okay to. But it was just such an incredible moment of demonstrating that each and every one of us has the ability in interactions we have every day to be the change that we want to see in the world and to not think that leading comes with having a certain pay packet or size number of people under you or whatever it might be. And so I think that was also a great lesson that my grandma imparted early. Yeah, she well, she sounds fearless and somebody who just really stands by her values, which is absolutely brilliant. And how fortunate were you to have her as one of your role models? And when you were young, what did you think you wanted to be? It changed so many times over the years. When I, I graduated school, I I did a law economics degree with a, a well, law arts, but with an economics major and a, a politics minor. And at that stage of my life, I think it was, again, some sense that you needed to understand the existing legal, economic and political structures in order to be able to drive change. Big believer in seeking to understand before you seek to be understood. But I I think the way that I might have applied that has evolved so many times. I think the mantra of my life has sort of been having a strong sense of direction and purpose and a loose hold of the reins. So it's probably fair for listeners who are thinking about this in the context of their own careers. I mean, working a lot in the education and entrepreneurship policy space and employment space over the last five or so years, it's sort of something that mentally all of us need to get more comfortable with too because I think when I graduated school, they were talking to us about the 10 careers we'd have over our lifetime. You know, now we're talking to graduates about the 18 careers they'll have over our lifetime. So that idea of anchoring to purpose but thinking about the multitude of ways your skills might be able to be applied in order to deliver impact I think is is of increasing significance for each and every one of us. 
Around this same time, there you are, you've done your law and economics degree, you've got this kind of the fundamentals of how some key systems in society work. This is, it sounds like the time where you really started to leverage the flat accessibility of leaders that Perth and Western Australia offered you. You became, it sounds like, a ninja at reaching out to leaders and well-known and high-profile people, asking to meet and learn from them. How did you do that? Because it feels like you had a pretty impressive success rate. One of the things I heard very early in my career was this great line. I was at a US leadership program and a guy called Virgil got up and he said, how long does it take to learn from someone's lifetime of experience? And there's about 800 of us in the room and the sort of crickets. And he said, coffee. He said, it's as simple as asking people for coffee. And I don't know why that hit me like a thunderbolt, but it did. And I was like, God, I can do that. That's easy. I think for a long time, I'd felt like maybe some of the tools or the the keys to leadership were just out of my grasp. Like maybe they were given to certain people that didn't look like me, or maybe these opportunities happened in a certain formal structured way where I had to wait my place in the queue. And then one day, if I was lucky, it would come to fruition. And it was just such an empowering idea that really it was just on my own preparedness to hustle that would give me access to the sort of learning that might enable me to have a bigger impact. So I made a commitment then and there that that was an idea that I was going to take seriously and I was going to make a commitment every week to reach out to someone that I admired or that I wanted to understand how they'd been able to achieve, you know, the impact that they had and see if they'd make the time to have a conversation with me. I love that. And what's an example of an actual question? Because, you know, it feels like even in those very early days of doing this, you had some pretty extraordinary senior and successful people say yes. You know, what's an example of an actual question you ask someone? Oh, gosh, it's been so many and varied because I think people's most important, like precious commodity is their time. And so the thing I always say to people is do not ask people for the sake of asking people. There are still people I would love to meet, but I do not have questions worthy of their time yet. And until I do, I will not reach out and ask for it. So I think the most important thing is knowing why, what it is you're seeking and why it is that that's the person to help you through that issue or challenge. You know, and early in life, like I remember in my probably like early 20s when I found myself doing some public leadership challenges and started to get quite vocal criticism in certain corners too, as always happens when you put your neck out or stand for an opinion. I remember sitting down with a lot of leaders and saying, how do you weather this sort of stuff? Because I'm finding it hard that people are writing these things in local newspapers or being trolls on social media. And that was a conversation because that was something that I was living through and knew that these people had and probably had better suggestions or ideas than how I was battling my way through it. Then there's been people where, you know, I remember when I was leading the Youth Summit for the G20, I mean, so much of that was a new challenge. I'd never been in, you know, government work and policy at scale. And so I was reaching out to so many people who'd worked in depth in those sorts of roles and saying, okay, here's our landscape. Based on your experience, you know, what would you do? Or how did you get access? Or how do you build momentum for these sorts of ideas? How do you write compelling policy documents? You know, so it's varied from being quite personal questions through to quite professional. And the people that I've gone and asked have been those that are placed to offer answers. And importantly, for those listening to, I think the other thing is people who you have the right dynamic with to also be asking those questions of. It's really important to create boundaries and be mindful of ensuring that you feel safe with the people and particularly that you're asking personal or career questions of, because it's just critical that they're coming from the right perspective and they're going to treat that vulnerability in the right way. 
So I think that's another important part I'd, I'd add in there. But, you know, for me, as I said, it came from a commitment I started early and it's been very much focused on what am I trying to solve? What capability or skills am I missing? Who's the person or who are the people that potentially can help me answer it? And how do I explain to them why their time and expertise would be invaluable to helping me accelerate impact or help solve this situation? I love that. And do you still do it? Yeah, absolutely. Every week? Yeah, without a doubt. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't mean that you get a conversation happening every week, but I'm reaching out to people every week. Definitely. That's fantastic. Fantastic. And you mentioned in your earlier answer about, you know, when you were leading and chairing the G20 Youth Summit. And so I can't let that go unnoticed, really. You know, for listeners, Holly was selected by the Prime Minister. Australia was hosting the G20, the major, massive, massive leadership summit back in 2014. And you were asked to chair the, the Youth Summit. And I think you were just 24 at that point in time. Was this something you were able to juggle and do? I mean, a huge thing. And you know, what's more important is that you actually were successful in getting some of the things that the Youth Summit wanted the main G20 summit to do, those policies were adopted, which is a huge triumph. But, you know, how did you manage this? And presumably, did you get time off work? And how daunting was this? Yeah, interesting question. I don't think anyone's ever asked me about that dimension of it. Uh, So what was intriguing about it when I first got the call from the Prime Minister's office around, you know, sharing it, the sort of request was, could you host a conference for 200 young people at some stage in 2014, because we're hosting the G20. And for leaders who may not be familiar, the G20 are the 20 most economically powerful countries on the world. So they're about 75% of world trade and 80% of world GDP. And specifically for the Youth Summit, there were 1.5 billion young people across the G20 that we'd sort of had this responsibility to, to represent. And I just remember thinking, gee, you know, hosting a conference for 200 young people doesn't really sound like we're discharging that responsibility properly. You know, and we worked with a group of young leaders on the committee there who were of the same view and said, you know, why don't we be ambitious? Why don't we become the first youth summit in the history of the G20 to influence the leader's declaration? And if that's our goal and we're reverse engineering, what does the next 12 months look like? And obviously it looked a lot less like, you know, a summit plays an important role because you do need to bring all your leaders from across those countries together. But it became a lot more about influencing all of the apparatus that wrapped around the G20, all the employment dialogues. It was building strong relationships and coalitions with the civil societies. We had a secretariat. There was some small funding provided. We had some great people working on that team to support us. But it was very clear that from an actual advocacy standpoint, someone needed to be sort of full-time on that. So I actually quit my job and volunteered probably for about six months, maybe slightly longer, full-time on that goal, wanting to give it kind of the dedicated focus that I thought it needed. And then I got about six months. I I moved overnight actually on a red-eye flight from Perth to Melbourne that year as well because I got about two months in, I did 197 flights that year. And um, I got about a month or two into doing that from Perth and with all the stakeholders on the East Coast. I thought, you've got to be kidding. This is very unsustainable. So I packed (laughs) up and moved on a red-eye flight and crashed on a mate's couch for about... Uh, three months probably and and just started having a go at it and then realized I was probably eating well and truly into my savings about six months into that and got a job that I sort of straddled alongside the kind of final couple of months of the G20. What a huge year. I'm very proud of what we collectively achieved that year and when we talk about passion and purpose it was just a year that lit me up to be working on a challenge of that scale. I mean our focus was youth unemployment and trying to drive policy outcomes for young people right around the world that were struggling to 
find a pathway to employment for those listening youth unemployment that year and there's some similar parallels in the COVID state that we're in right now but was three to four times the adult unemployment rate in every G20 country you know Spain that year had 64 percent youth unemployment you had riots on the streets in the UK and France so it was a, a really challenging time and this gap between what we were skilling and training young people in and the reality of what the workforce had available for them when they graduated or when they finished high school, whatever the pathway might have been, there was just a huge skills mismatch. So it was a really purposeful piece of work that we were doing. It sounds like you achieved really great things that you should be very proud of. Yeah, you know, it takes its toll, doesn't it? And I believe that around the same time, your health started to suffer. Can you tell us a bit about that and how you kind of worked through it? Yeah, totally. So it was actually before the G20 where that happened. And right. I sort of have said to people previously that for those listening who are A-type personalities, we have an ability to set goals and run our lives in a way that can sometimes run us into the ground. And that's exactly what happened to me, you know, early days of, of university, 2013, I, I just hit a wall and I was diagnosed with depression. And it was a really pivotal moment in my life. It was one of the hardest things that I've been through, but at the same time, I look back at it as one of the best things that ever happened to me. And I want to be very clear when I talk about mental health, as I think it's always really important that everyone's experience is so different. And I'm only speaking from my truth and my experience here. But one of the things for me was it was a really clear moment to go, I'm not living in a way that's sustainable. And I need to reset my foundations of everything from kind of my values, my relationship to some concepts and ideas like vulnerability, the rhythm that I live my life with, one of the biggest, most powerful shifts and actually wrote an article about it that's been published about learning to manage energy, not manage time. And that was an absolute game changer. And also the courage to walk away from people and things that were no longer serving me. It was really revelatory. And, and some of you can probably resonate with this. When you hit moments like that, who's there for you and who's not? And what really matters? And it's a big recalibration in those moments. And what do you think you do differently today as a consequence of that? <sighs> so much. A couple of them are just fundamental shifts. Um, so one of them was really changing my relationship with vulnerability. I sort of had this ability to always push through, find a way almost to push down emotions. And so getting into Brene Brown's work and daring greatly and really resetting that and helping myself to understand, you know, it's okay to find things hard. It's okay to have challenges. It's okay to express emotion. In fact, it's, it's a good thing. And if we dull the kind of difficulty, we also dull joy. That sort of stuff was quite revelatory for me. I definitely manage energy, not time. I'm acutely aware now. And I, I think before where I might have desensitized to how I was feeling. And if I had a day, I'd sort of see success as how many things can I pack into it and get done. Now I much more care about what gives me energy, who gives me energy, how am I doubling down on that work and the people that I'm working with versus forcing myself to do things for someone else's reason or because I should, because someone told me to, because it would look good. I just don't buy into any of that anymore. And there was a big reset in who the most important people in my life were. There was a big change in friendship group and mentors and projects and things I was working on at that point. So they were all really big changes that I made. And when I say managing energy, I think one of the biggest things is just knowing what energizes me and what I need to mentally and physically recharge myself and making sure that that's a building block of every day and every week, not something I slot in if I've still got time 
you know, on a Friday night after I finished work or, you know, on a Sunday afternoon, if I haven't, you know, fully booked my social schedule or whatever, it's actually a building block. So for me, it's exercise, for example, and having that in every day is one of the things I do for me because it makes sure I'm the best me I can be. And so I think everyone kind of becoming conscious or curious about what those things are for them and everyone's different and just making sure they're non-negotiables. That was a hugely powerful change. Yeah. And I mean, when you look at everything that you do today, it's incredibly varied and you, you have so many things that you do. I imagine then that those things you've chosen because they light you up energetically and therefore you can actually do even more than perhaps you could do if they didn't. Oh, totally. It's such a good point. You're absolutely right. You know, when when things aren't an obligation and that they're a source of passion, it completely changes your relationship to them because you're energized by them. You're not coming out of them feeling drained and having to think about how you reset yourself to go and do something. So I think you're right. It does expand your capacity in that way. And you've got to continue to manage your bandwidth and make sure you've got kind of the the downtime that you need and, and all that sort of stuff. So it's, it's sort of not about tricking yourself into finding another way to load your plate. <laughs> but uh, yeah. I totally agree with you that I think when you're energized, you bring so much more passion and energy to what you do naturally. And that gives you more to give to everything. And it seems to make a lot of sense now looking back, therefore, that it was really not that much later, just quite shortly after G20, and you're still only 25, that you decided to sort of, it feels like, go out on your own and kind of have this portfolio career, which suddenly then speaks to being able to choose the things that give you energy. How tough a decision was that though, to kind of step outside of a more conventional, at a young age, employment kind of trajectory of being, you know, working in a big corporate and the like, and, you know, step out and do your own thing. It's an interesting question because in some ways it was one of the easiest things I've ever done. And in other ways, it was one of the hardest. And so I think, For me, it was interesting more, and I think sometimes it was hard, and I don't think it's coming from a place of bad intention, but largely because there was a whole bunch of people that told me that it was a silly idea. And that look, there are still some people that still tell me that's a silly idea. (laughs) I mean, all of us will resonate with people who have strong opinions or a strong ability to project onto us what they believe we should be doing. And certain people had plans for me, and this was disrupting the plan. And so there was a a number of people that... uh, made a point of of letting me know that. The reason I say that's challenging is because it's only human that that creates fear-mongering, right? What if they're right? What if they're true? What if this is going to, you know, be a disaster? What if I should have stayed in in corporate, whatever? But I think for me, 100% what you observe, that, that want to manage energy and that want to be wholly on purpose every day in the work that I was doing and with that agility that the way I could apply you know, my talent and my and my energy could adapt according to how the circumstances and opportunities adapted. You know, it's just been the most extraordinary, what are we now, six years? And so many of the things that have transpired, I never would have been able to predict. That's really refreshing to hear. Now, I want to just shift gear slightly because you've also, and listeners, we're going to have to ask Holly in a minute how not to feel inadequate, but you've also just graduated from Harvard University with a master's in public policy, which I think you had a focus on technology's kind of influence in particular. So first and foremost, congratulations for that. Thank you. What made you and what drove you to want to do these studies? 
Yeah, I, I think an extension of what I was sharing before about my undergrad, I've sort of always had this belief that you need to understand things as they are in order to change them. I sensed in myself this growing frustration about some of the way that we were operating in terms of our, our public decisions, you know, these frustrations around persistent inequalities and failure to make progress on major social goals and aspirations, you know, whether we're looking at climate change, whether we're talking about you know, universal education, whether we're talking about closing the gap with our Indigenous brothers and sisters. And so I thought, I've got to understand how these institutions are formed, created, operate better in order to think about how I might be able to make a bigger uh, contribution in this space. And so for me, that was the motivation behind wanting to go and, and study public policy was to come back and think about, you know, how can we do public leadership better? Because we know right now across the board, it doesn't take me to tell you that we are challenged in a way that certainly we haven't seen before by the complexity, the international nature, the intergenerational nature of some of the problems that we are faced with. And across the board, we're seeing declining levels in our of trust in our leaders and all manner of difficulty with with getting progress and engagement. So that that was really the motivation for going and doing the study. I think I can't wait to see what Holly does next. But speaking of what Holly's doing right now, I mean, some of those issues that you just surfaced then, were they key triggers to then also write your book, The Leading Edge, which is coming out this month? Congratulations on that as well. Were you writing that whilst kind of doing your studies at Harvard? Yeah, so I think there were there were two things around that. One was I spent a lot of my first year focused on doing the lit review on leadership and kind of looking at the literature that existed in this space and thinking, wow, this is really quite one-dimensional in the sense that predominantly the stories that we tell and the paradigm we look at leadership through is, is that of a privileged white male kind of military general or Navy SEAL, sports coach, or like Jack Welsh or Silicon Valley type figure. And it just struck me that there was a real absence of diverse stories and diverse approaches to leadership that I really wanted to, I became quite passionate about wanting to correct. And I think the second thing was this want not only to diversify the stories and the ideas, but also to make this sort of stuff more accessible because I was very fortunate to go and study that degree. Not everyone has that opportunity. And so I had this real want to kind of make this open source. You know, if you're hungry to do the learning, to apply the ideas, like this, the ability to be the change you want to see in the world is within the grasp of any of us. And, and so I wanted to help people by putting that toolkit in their hands. So I'm really proud. There's 60 plus case studies in the book, you know, leaders from across 20 nations, an equal gender split, all generations, every sexual orientation, every sector, you name it. And I'm really hopeful that more people, when they read this, will see themselves in the idea of leadership. Yay. Well, we are such massive advocates for that. That's exactly what this podcast is all about. Talking about the book, you talk about the importance of getting out of your comfort zone. And I believe you once spent an entire year doing something you were afraid of every day. <laughs> you two have done your research. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Can you tell us about that experience and what you learned? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I do a write about it in the book because it's probably one of the most if not the most extraordinary thing I've done from a personal growth standpoint. Um, so I'd read a phrase where it had said that the things that we're afraid of are the things we most need to do. And I sort of believe every, us, every one of us has sort of that one crazy friend 
uh, in our lives who's the only person silly enough when we say, hey, I've got a great idea to tell you awesome I'm in before you tell them what it is. And so I said to my best friend, you know, hey, I've just read this and how about we guinea pig it? You know, how about every day for a year you and I have a crack at doing something we're afraid of? And never once do things by half because we were like, all right, let's do it. And we'll, we'll set up a little app where we've got to, you know, log it every day. And we had consequences on the line if anyone didn't do it. But the reality was, you know, we both embraced it so much. One of the things that we kind of became aware of after this year of having conversations with people and doing this journey ourselves is that we've really desensitized ourselves to the way that fear shows up in our lives every day. When we think about fear, and I don't know what image it conjured in your heads when I when I said fear, but, you know, a lot of people think about jumping out of a plane or sharks and spiders and these kind of really Hollywood dramatised or quite extreme fears. And, and while they might be real, they're not the fears that get in the way of our potential. What we're really talking about there are these small moments daily where, you know, you think about in a meeting, putting your hand up and asking a question. But fear kicks in, it goes, hold on, what if it's a dumb question? Or what if people think I'm an idiot for asking that? And so you never put your hand up and you never ask it. Or you've got an idea for a difference you could make or a project you might want to start, but fear kicks in and goes, don't be stupid, let me tell you the 25 million reasons that can't work. And so one of the things that, that we learned when we thought about and reflected on the year at the end of it was the reason that year is one of the most powerful things I've ever done from a development standpoint was because I resensitized to those fears and they are what I spent the bulk of the year doing you know it was learning how to say no I mean that was the year I started my own business it was learning to be a beginner and to be okay with saying I don't understand can you help me or I don't know and that's really uncomfortable and scary for a lot of us you know it was being yeah. prepared to pitch myself and tell my story in a way that I probably didn't have the comfort to at that point so many things that actually so many of us engage with on a daily basis that were those moments where I went that's that's the sort of fear that we need to be tackling. I love that. That was the game changer. Yeah, totally. How brilliant. So another one of the things that you really talk about in your book is the power of our internal narratives, particularly how our internal narratives can impact resilience. You know, over the past year, it's it's been a tough year for everybody, but, you know, you've had some big changes how have you had to sort of change or use your internal narrative to help you get through that? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's one of the more helpful toolkits I've sort of come across in a, a personal resilience sense, sort of understanding the difference, the way that we tell ourselves the story about what happened to us and the difference that can make in terms of our interpretation. There's enormous power in the way that we tell stories to ourselves, because ultimately that's how we as human beings make meaning. And so the power that we have is to take control of the storing in order to shape the meaning. And so from my end, you know, when I catch myself maybe going down uh, more negative or less optimistic thought patterns, I'll often say to myself out loud or in my head, like, but, but audibly in the way that I'm catching my thought pattern, the story that I'm telling myself about that is. What I think the power in that is, is anchoring your unconscious in your conscious. The majority of our thoughts that happen every day are completely unconscious. And we are unbelievably uh, negative by default in terms of being geared towards loss and negativity. And so part of it is this discipline of how do I start catching myself? And when I catch myself, how do I intervene and reshape the story and the meaning? And so for me, that's been really powerful. Like even in the way you tell the story, like I can tell a story about last year that could focus on the negative and the challenge. And, and I know how real that is. So I do not want to be flippant. For so many people listening, there's been there's been real loss and trauma from what happened in the last year. And I don't want to diminish just how challenging that's been. 
But there's also an opportunity to talk about silver linings. Certainly for me, there was a year with my partner that I was never meant to have. There is the opportunity to write that I never would have had otherwise. There are all these things that came from the disruption of the year as it was meant to go and opportunities as they were meant to be. But that whole idea of what's the story I'm telling myself and can I tell myself a story that's more helpful to where the outcome I want, the direction I want to head in, the way that I might then take a next step. I think that's where people can really powerfully focus energy and intention. Yeah, absolutely. That technique and uh, is very powerful. It's all, you know, that kind of being aware and starting to label, you know, but speaking of stories, I think it's very hard to listen to your story. And I, I'm going to speak for myself here. You know, here you are, you've achieved incredibly stellar heights at a really young age. I think you're still just 31. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, some people, oh, that would be me, like here, you know, knowing your story, and I'm sure a couple of other listeners would go, OMG, this woman's in another league. What is the point of me even trying to learn something from her? Because she's superhuman, superwoman, whether it's chairing the G20 Youth Summer, being a Fulbright Scholar at Harvard, all of the multiple successes that you've had around the world, board director at such a young age, you know, speaker and conference convener. What is your advice to us on how we deal with someone when, if we have a, a tendency and a habit to compare ourselves, what is your advice to us on the stories we need to tell ourselves when encountering someone like you? Uh, wow, I don't know where to go with that question a little bit because I think one of, one of the things I, I get a little crushed when people say that sort of stuff because I think the whole heartbeat of what I hope to be in the world is an empowerer of others. And so the thing I would hope is that in the ability to, I guess, knit parts of this together for myself, and I hope people can see the ability to do that for themselves. I mean, the, the, the part of the reason for writing the book is to share stories of people who are at all different stages of the journey that are from all different backgrounds, all different ages. And, and I feel very much like I'm in those trenches with everyone. I'm a long way off having the impact on the world I hope to. I am as challenged by, you know, imposter syndrome as, as everyone else is in different environments and circumstances. We all feel that inadequacy. We all are not sure how that next part of the plan is going to come together. I remember it was an interesting reflection that someone said to me once, uh, it was a few years ago, and they were talking about all these incredible people that I've had the opportunity to meet. And they said, do you not like do you just not feel so inadequate being around them? And it was quite a striking moment. I remember, remember enough to be sharing it with you today, but I certainly remember enough to go, I've never once thought that. I've always just thought, wow, how lucky am I to have the opportunity to pick the brains and understand and unpack the story of these people and to hopefully take some of the nuggets and think about how they apply to my world. And that's always the way that I've thought about it. And, and maybe that's a, a, like, a, sometimes I think about maybe that's not the nature of, the way that we think about success in more Commonwealth countries, which seem to have a pervasion of kind of tall poppy syndrome, where there's yeah. this comparison of, oh, if someone else is successful, that diminishes my light. Where I'm like, no, you think about it as a candle lighting other candles. And this is maybe, yeah, a more American attitude, perhaps. Wow, that person's been successful. How can I understand how they've done it? Or I'm really, you know, interested by the fact they've gone and done X. How might I be able to learn from that and apply that to my own world? So my only suggestion, and it feels very strange that people would think it about me from where I sit in my own perspective, 
but with whoever you feel like you're encountering with that mindset where it's, you know, might impress you or what have you on what they've done and accumulated. I think coming from a place of curiosity versus comparison is probably the, the greatest suggestion I can offer. You know, what are the questions that you can ask? What can you seek to understand? And then what of what they've shared with you, can you challenge yourself to try on? Because I think this idea that it's not possible for me, that's just not true. Anyone listening to this is capable of starting from right where they are right now with exactly what they've got and being the change that they want to be in the world. It is only our own fear and self-doubt that gets in the way of that. Yeah, thank you for that. You've answered that superbly, I think, and very inspiringly as well. And I am deeply sorry. I would never want to make you feel crushed. But I think exploring that and surfacing it for listeners, for ourselves, I think it's awesome to hear you talk about that. So thank you for that. A question we like to wrap up our conversation with, and we've so enjoyed this conversation with you, Holly, is you're 31. So normally we'd ask our guests, what advice would they give to their 30-year-old self? So we won't do that with you. (laughs) What what advice would you give to your 20-year-old self? Ooh, good question. I think I would probably some of the, uh, reflecting on what we've talked about already, I I probably wish some of the lessons that I learned the hard way, I could have learned a little easier, a little earlier in the sense of, I I wish I'd sort of learned earlier to manage my energy, not my time. And to think really intentionally about my choices in terms of what I, and by extension of that idea of energy, what I say yes to and what I say no to. And actually understanding is much the importance of saying no as the importance of saying yes. So that idea that it's only through saying no to things that we can truly say yes to others and understanding power of the choices that we make with those decisions. I think my advice to my 20-something-year-old self would be um, to really get my head around what that meant for me and the way that I wanted to apply those ideas to my life. Yeah, I love that. Well, Holly Ransom, thank you so much. It's been such a fantastic and inspiring conversation. If listeners want to find out more about you, your brand new book, The Leaning Edge, your speaking, or any of the work you do, where should they go? Well, you can find me on basically any any social media platform out there. Please look me up on you know LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, uh, you name it. And then uh, you can visit uh, holyransom.com. And the other thing I encourage listeners, we're, we're turning the book at the moment into a 28-day interactive challenge that we're going to be kicking off in September. So stay tuned for that. I'd love if you want to be involved in putting these ideas to work in your life. That's one of the things I'm excited about, playing with them, seeing how they work for you. So it'll be a really exciting challenge in September and I'd love to invite all of you to join us. Awesome. Well, we'll put all of that on those show notes and uh, thank you so much, Holly. It's been great and we look forward to uh, meeting you in person when the pandemic ends sometime. Can't wait for our recently scheduled dinner (laughs) that we decided (laughs) we've got to put on. And just thank you so much for the energy and the thoughtfulness of the questions. I, I really appreciate the opportunity to be on the show. Thanks so much, Holly. Holly has such a great way with words and articulating concepts so beautifully, doesn't she? Yeah, she really does. It really resonated how she talked about how we've all become desensitized to the way fear shows up in our lives in small ways every day. Yeah, I really love that. And I loved her year where she did something that scared her every day for the whole 365 days. That's so impressive. You know, I have to say, I'm actually quite tempted to try that. 
Maybe we should have a don't stop us now fear challenge. Great idea. Let's make that happen. Well, <laughs> well that's enthusiastic. Yikes, what have I just done? How, well, maybe we'll just do it for a month. How about that? Yeah, deal. <laughs> the other thing I really loved about Holly is her practice of reaching out to people she admires for advice. But only when she's positive she has a question that's worthy of their time. Yeah, that's really great, isn't it? It certainly is. Well, that's this episode done and dusted. And remember, if you're inspired by Holly, then you can read more of her thoughtful insights in her new book, The Leading Edge. We highly recommend it. We sure do. Now stay tuned next week for another mini episode. And in the meantime, take care, have fun and do something small that scares you today. Ciao for now. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.